The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A warm welcome to Squawbox on the 4th of July. Happy holidays to those of you celebrating. For the rest of you, these are your headlines. The global bond rally continues with the U.S. 10-year yield hitting a 32-month low as investors bet on looming rate cuts in the U.S. and Europe. White House economic advisor Larry Kudlow says face-to-face talks between Washington and Beijing will resume, quote, soon as the two sides work to resolve their ongoing trade war. Deutsche Bank is reportedly set to unveil a dramatic overhaul that could cost 5 billion euros and push the troubled German lender to its fourth net loss in five years. Independence Day, starring Donald Trump. The U.S. president gets ready to headline multi-million dollar Fourth of July celebrations in Washington with fighter jets and military tanks. Well, a very warm welcome to Squawk Box this morning. Happy 4th of July to those of you who are celebrating. Taking a look at the moves we saw on Wall Street yesterday, the rally continues. All three major indices ended in positive territory, but also closed at fresh record highs. So very, very uh, strong mood continuing stateside. In terms of the moves higher on the week, S&P is now up 1.8%, the Dow up about 1.4%, and the NASDAQ up more than 2%. So very strong gains across the board there. In terms of the narrative that came together yesterday, we had some softer data come through on the jobs front. We had the ADP report, which showed that private payrolls rose just 102,000 in June. And we also had some softer services data in the form of the non-manufacturing ISM, which fell to 55.1, its lowest level since 2017. This bolstered expectations of Fed rate cuts and perhaps part of why the rally continued uh, across the equity space. Markets did close early yesterday in anticipation of today's uh, 4th of July holiday. Close today as those investors celebrate. Let's take a look at global yields and see how we're set up today. The global rally continued yesterday in in strong form. Taking a look at some of the individual moves, firstly on the Treasury yields, uh, where where the Treasury yield just over here, as you can see, currently yielding about 1.95%. Yesterday, we saw the 10-year touch a three-year low of 1.94%. The rally also hit European stocks, uh, European uh, bonds, the 10-year German bond trading negative 0.386% at the moment. Uh, The nomination of Christine Lagarde as the next ECB chief seems to have sent the signal to investors that ultra-loose monetary policy is here to stay. Uh, Let's take a look now at oil markets. We saw some uh, bigger moves yesterday. Oil prices now inching lower. WTI down about a a half a percentage point. Brent down about the same. We saw some solid gains yesterday, uh, but now the oil price is being pressured by some data that came out showing a smaller than expected decline in U.S. crude stockpiles. Shifting gears, let's take a look at overnight trading. Asian markets more mixed than we saw yesterday on Wall Street. The Shanghai Composite down uh, about a third of a percentage point at the moment. The Hang Seng down about 0.9%. And the Nikkei 225 bucking that trend up about a quarter of a percentage point there. Uh, So that's the picture for Asia. 
fairly mixed trade. Let's take a look now at European opening calls and see how putting this all together, what this means for European markets. We're looking at a positive start for Europe, which is a fairly remarkable given the strong run that European stocks have already had. Yesterday marked the fifth day in a row of positive, gain, of positive moves for the stock 600. So it looks as though that positive momentum will continue into trade today. Steve? Juliana, why do you say it's remarkable? I'm really interested. I mean, there's some interesting adjectives going around the show already today, including my headlines. Um, uh, do you know, why is it remarkable given the fact that we've had signal, and I only say this because I think it's a good talking point as well, We've already had the signal that rates are going to be cut in the US. I mean, they're going to be cut in Europe potentially as well. They, they, the markets love what they saw on Christine Lagarde. They think she's going to be dovish as well. But is it remarkable that when people, when this one line, and it's in the FT, it's all over the world, so it's nothing particularly stunning, all two-year sovereign debt in the Eurozone is what? Fill in the gaps. Yeah, trading with a negative yield. You cannot go to Europe and find a positive yield on two-year paper. So putting that with your comments about the markets, which are absolutely right, I mean, it's spot on, but it just seems to me that where would you put your money if you can't put it in equities? I take your point and the relative value opportunity in uh, or return opportunity in equities is, is attractive, but it's important to remember that central banks have turned dovish because global growth expectations Bingo. have fallen off a cliff. Absolutely. So I think that's important. Corporate fundamentals are not necessarily what's driving equity gains. Uh, it's, it's perhaps You're more right. the relative Global yields have gone negative and equities have been pushed higher to higher and higher valuations because everything is so bad. Remind yourself of that, viewers, when you get shocked when the market has some oscillations at some stage, yeah? The reason why the markets have gone up is because things are so bad, yeah? Nuts, isn't it? Uh, trade talks between the US and China are set to resume next week, according to the White House economic advisor, Larry Kudlow. Discussions will initially be over the phone. And Kudlow said he wasn't sure when face-to-face -face talks would happen, but said this could be soon. Eunice filed this report from Beijing. The U.S. Trade Representative's office says that the two sides are attempting to arrange a phone conversation for the top negotiators next week. Trump administration appears to be easing restrictions on the blacklisted Chinese tech firm Huawei as part of the agreement. The Commerce Department told Reuters it's reviewing license requests from U.S. companies that want to sell to the company. The department is using the, quote, presumption of denial standard, which means the applications would be highly scrutinized. White House Economic Advisor Larry Kudlow explained the selection process this way. We'll take another look at a number of the uh, export licenses and the applications, but it will only pertain to, a, to what I'm calling general merchandise kinds of technologies. That is to say, no national security sensitivities at all. Remember, Huawei remains on the entity list, which is fundamentally a national security issue. And these are mostly telecom related. You could buy them in Vietnam, you could buy them in South Korea, you can buy them in Taiwan. We're not giving up anything. So the thrust of that, uh, of those orders remains in place and will not move. Trust me on this, will not move. A source following the trade talks on the Chinese side said the Chinese could go for that arrangement, though it's still unclear how national security will be defined. Huawei founder Run Zhengfei says President Trump's move will have little impact on the business. Still, an insider at Huawei told me that the company is under no illusions that it's off the hook and it is now waiting for some clarity on the policy from the White House. Eunice Yoon, CNBC Business News, Beijing.
Yeah. Okay, the US trade deficit. Now, let's remember that Mr. President came in saying he was going to wipe out the trade deficit, didn't he? He's been in for, what, two and a half years now. So how's he getting on? The US trade deficit rose by almost 8.5% in May to $55.5 billion. Hmm, okay, not so good. Uh, meanwhile, the goods trade deficit with China, you surely sorted that one out. I oh, know, it increased to $30.2 billion, whilst activity in the service sector hit a two-year low in June. Elsewhere, US private employers, as uh, Juliana was saying at the wall, added 102,000 jobs in June, missing expectations. The 10-year Treasury yield has fallen to levels not seen in 32 months as the global bond rally spreads to the US. Uh, Eurozone yields had hit fresh record lows on expectations of further ECB stimulus under Christine Lagarde, who's been nominated to head up the central bank. The IMF boss is tipped to maintain a dovish monetary policy stance if she takes on the role. Now, Steve and I are joined around the desk by our first guest, Florian Hentz, European economist from Berenberg. In terms of the market reaction to Lagarde's nomination for the ECB role, do you think it's the right reaction to expect her to continue with Draghi's ultra-loose monetary policy stance? I guess the reaction is, is slightly overdone, um, but what we, uh, as far as we know from all the speeches that she's given over the uh, recent past in relation to the ECB, she's going to continue basically very much in line with uh, Draghi's stint in terms of QE, in terms of OMT, if it would ever had to be enacted. Um, so in that regard, um, probably markets are more relieved about continuity rather than that she's going to add even more stimulus than what the ECB or Draghi have, uh, have indicated over the last couple of weeks. Now, in the wake of her, the news of her nomination, there's been a lot of debate around uh, the fact that she isn't a trained economist. Uh, she doesn't have uh, expertise in monetary policy or experience there. She's a lawyer. Powell also has a similar background in that he is not an economist by trade. How do you think this is going to affect her leadership? at the ECB and is this, a, is this a, a handicap for her in your view? I wouldn't say it's a handicap. Um, I mean the difference with Powell was that he had been on the Fed Governor um, or uh, Board of Governors for, for, for about 10 years bef before he turned into, into the chair. Um, the big question is sort of in what, to what extent um, is the fact that she's an experienced politician going to be sort of um, a bad thing or a good thing? Um, on the one hand, you, you could argue maybe at this time it was um, time for kind of an old tradition trained economist central banker, which um, makes makes a, gives a very powerful messages to EU leaders. Um, it's not about monetary stimulus, but we probably have to um, nudge up some um, some fiscal. Um, on the other hand, maybe Christine Lagarde is ex extremely capable of doing exactly that. So Draghi kind of failed of, of winning over EU governments, especially Germany. Florida. Guys, you have to spend more. Um, yeah, but, yeah. but that's not his job. And I appreciate that he did try manfully. Uh, he really did. I remember many of his earlier speeches. We'll give you cover. You sort your stuff out. You sort your structural out. You sort your fiscal out. We'll give you cover. He said it constantly as well. What possible hope has any central banker in Europe got of persuading profligate governments to rein in spending when they are politicians who, let's face it, are in a perpetual election cycle? I.e., I can't see how the reliance on monetary policy is going to change any time in Europe. Uh, fair question. Um, the um, sort of my hope is it rests a bit on that she has been 
at these tables with uh, Merkel and, well, not Macron, but Hollande before. Draghi has done that before as well. But um, maybe her experience during the financial crisis and the um, Eurozone debt crisis, when um, she was actually pushing for slightly more fiscal stimulus. I mean, she, she, she raised the point of Eurobonds at that time. Um, she still got along very well with Wolfgang Schäuble, but she may be in a, um, in a different spot now than Draghi has been. And obviously, the more we, we, we add monetary stimulus and the more we, we don't really see an effect from that, um, because I I mean, what, what so, a f- impact so is going to have? An I, I think stimulus. you make an incredibly valid point. Let me ask the blatant question, which at least 50% of our audience is asking. What is the point in lower rates now? What is the point in more monetary stimulus? It's, it's an absolutely valid question. Um, I think the ECB has come to the conclusion, especially Draghi, um, not uh, we do whatever it takes, but whatever we can. Um, and that's that's probably all um, all they can do. I mean, lower um, uh, short-term rates a bit more, um, extend the balance sheet and thereby sort of long-term yields. That's all they can do. But um, ultimately, um, but, but, especially but sorry, sort of in a, in a bigger exactly slowdown. exactly the opposite effect if it basically means Italy looks at uh, their, um, their new their bond redemptions and, of course, their new issues say, oh, wow, look at this. We can raise money at naught. We can at naught because our two-year bonds are trading negative across Europe. We can raise money at 1.6 on our 10-year. Let's m- lengthen our duration if we want to or just keep doing short-term paper at zero. But the point is, where is the incentive from this wonderful backstop from Mr Draghi? And again, I have nothing but sympathy, but has, he, he ignominiously failed, as you quite rightly pointed out, fail to make these governments see any form of sense whatsoever. And we're going to the next financial crisis, because there will be a next financial crisis, with greater debt than we had 10 years ago. With greater debt across the board, with worse debt to GDP ratios in many cases than we had even at the peak of the financial crisis. Not, not every country is like Ireland where they've sorted it out. This is an appalling situation, isn't it? It's true. I mean, the Italian situation especially is sort of uh, concerning, um, but we have to see that uh, the Italian government slightly has changed tack over the last, let's say, couple of weeks or months, um, not to the extent that I'm sort of completely reassured and we could argue sort of the truth that we found now is just just sort of a pleasure deferred um, and it's probably not going to last very long until sort of in autumn we we get another sort of escalation in the in the conflict between those two um, but obviously you're raising an um, extremely important um, in, in, important point and um, I mean at, at this point I, I, I couldn't say well it's it's a lot about sort of but lower growth expectations you know? lower inflation expectations because as an economist you'll never get the top job at the ECB <laughs> That's true, from now on and not even at the fair. Florian Henson, we're going to find out what the good news is after the break because I've already depressed myself, all right? So lovely to see you for the the moment. We'll we'll get back to you in a few moments' time. Um, Right, our US colleagues uh, will speak to one of President Trump's picks for the Fed Board of Governors, Judy Shelton. Uh, Tune in. Uh, didn't she say she wants a percentage cut straight away? Was it? A, uh, it was as her, wasn't soon it? As yeah. possible. As soon as possible. Uh, tune into that interview tomorrow, 1740 CET. 
And ahead, Italy avoids possible EU fines, as uh, Florian was just mentioning, over its public debt. But the bloc says it will continue to keep an eye on Rome. More after the break. And if you just can't get enough of Squawk Box, be sure to tune into our very own podcast. Head to CNBC.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to have a listen and download today's episode. And for our listeners, stick around for more. CNBC Signature Event. East Tech West. CNBC's exclusive invitation-only retreat returns to Nanshao, Guangzhou, China in 2019. We explore all things tech from artificial intelligence to 5G. Join the world's most prolific investors, inventors, and entrepreneurs as they share their stories and celebrate innovation. Visit EastTechWest.com for an application to attend. Welcome back to Squawk Box. The spread between Italian and German 10-year bond yields touched its lowest level in more than a year after the EU said it would not trigger disciplinary action against Rome over its public debt. Rome could have been hit with fines by Brussels. The EU Commission said Italy is now expected to fall into line with the bloc's budgetary rules following promises by the country's ruling coalition to trim its deficit over the next two years. Now, Italian President Giuseppe Conti hailed the decision as a sign of Rome's credibility. But EU Economy Commissioner Pierre Moscovici said the bloc will continue to monitor the situation. The Commission has concluded that the debt-based uh, excessive deficit procedure for Italy is no longer warranted uh, at this stage. It was never the spirit of this Commission, the Juncker Commission. It was never my spirit. Uh, the aim of the Stability and Growth Pact is not to punish or to discipline uh, anyone. It is to ensure that uh, governments pursue uh, sound public finances, correct problems swiftly uh, when they occur. Let's take a look there at Italian yields on the screen in front of you. You can see there the 10-year uh, trading at 1.585%, uh, dropping to its lowest level seen since late 2016. So very strong reaction. We also had a strong reaction in equity markets yesterday with the FTSE MIB gaining about 2.4%, so strongly outperforming the broader European market. Let's uh, get back to Florian Hens, who sits, who joins us now, European economist from Berenberg. Um, so the commission decided not to trigger disciplinary action against Italy. The concern seems to be the 2020 budget, though, for Italy. And they have made concessions with 2019 that seem to have satisfied the commission. But they haven't really outlined what their actual plans are for 2020. So isn't this decision just kicking the can down the road when it comes to a, 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 a conflict between Brussels and Rome? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly the point. I, I would say sort of it's, it's only a pleasure deferred. Um, in autumn, um, the whole situation is probably going to heat up again. Um, we didn't get a new sort of uh, um, target for, for next year, or they, they didn't change that really. So maybe it was um, the choice by the, this, this term's commission to basically say, OK, we, we are kind of fine with 2019. Um, it's up to the next commission 
to decide basically on what's uh, what's happening with 20, uh, 2020. But um, from what we can say, sort of the 20 to 40 billion that Italy would have to um, save to be kind of within those EU rules, um, it's it's going to be a big climb down for um, for um, Di Maio and Salvini. And yet, and yet. This is all based on the premise of growth rates as well, because it's a, it's, a pub, it's a projection of debt as opposed to growth as well. And given the fact that the Italians, um, not willfully, but they got very wrong their growth estimates for this year as well, compared to what they are actually now going to be when they had their last set of all that big set of negotiations last autumn as well. Um, if the growth estimates miss, then the deficit figures miss as well. So we're only talking about map calculations here. What I really care about is actually the policies to get the economy back on track, the policies to get the debt down, the policies to get confidence going again as well. Does anyone have one? And we can look beyond Italy on this as well. I think there are a number of people that would have ones, but uh, you're not going to find those probably in the um, in, in, in the government in Italy. That's uh, I think that's that's sort of the key, the key. Um, Beyond all those sort of um, tax cuts and big uh, spendings, uh, spending plans, I think the key is really reform reversal. So what we saw about the uh, pension reform or the labour market reform, I mean, these are the sort of the um, key um, requirements or key components as to how you get um, long, long-term growth going. And in that regard, um, I mean, the Italian government is, is, is not offering what it should have. Yes, it has impl- implemented those plans in a more muted form, okay. fortunately, and that has uh, sort of caused this truce with the EU. But in the long term, it's, it's probably a prime yet, candidate for debt crisis. And yet, let's go through this. Let's, 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 name, let's play name the Italian Prime Minister, okay? <laughs> okay, so let's put Conte and his uh, cohorts aside for now, or Salvini, who's a de facto Prime Minister. Um, come on, let's go some Italian Prime Ministers. Mon- Monti, Letta, Renzi. Enria. Uh, yeah, exactly. So all of these gentlemen as well. Uh, Gentiloni, yeah? So four of them in a row. They were kind of like on board with Europe, weren't they? On board with Brussels. Technocrats, a couple of them as well. So these are the four Prime Ministers from the centre-left between Berlusconi and Conti, yeah, as well. Which one of those four Prime Ministers got the Italian debt-to-GDP down? by doing it by the rules of the EU. Yeah, you're right. None of them. None of them. And therein lies the point about populism in Italy as well and across Europe as well. By playing by the European rule book, not one of them got the Italian debt down. Okay, but that would be... All got the growth up particularly. I think that's that's sort of the crucial point. Debt, yes, it is an issue, but in the Italian case, I think uh, the lack of growth that is an even bigger issue. And in that regard, I think Monti and um, and Renzi, they did quite a, a number of sort of serious reforms: the pension reform, the labour market yes, reform, did. and we saw at least from sort of 2014 actually employment growth picking up considerably. But um, at the moment, um, the, uh, the the two radical parties in June 2018 formed that coalition. Basically, that employment growth has has has, has stalled, and I think that that is sort of the big issue. Um, we would need we would need Italy to implement even more structural reforms. Anything that can, goes can we, back is uh, is how, how long we got, Can we switch? 
You want, go, you want another Italy question? Well, I just wanted to follow up quickly on a point that we were discussing yesterday on the persistent divide between the North and the South in Italy. I mean, that's a huge issue for them. And it, the, the Lega Party continues to push for more autonomy, which seems like that would just exacerbate the divide. Is there anything that you see, anything that gives you hope that this administration, this coalition, can uh, bridge the gap and do something about this, this growing divide? Maybe not this coalition, but what gives me hopes is sort of the opinion polls which show um, one of the two parties, the Five Stars, has seen polls or have plunged in the polls. And at the same time, the Lega, which is sort of the, um, the representative of the northern business owners, um, they've really sort of skyrocketed. And at some point, I think that there's going to be the calculus for Matteo Salvini, the leader of the Lega party, to um, pull, the, pull the plug on this coalition and say, um, we probably um, going to be more successful in quitting this coalition, have a new rerun at an election, and then form with Berlusconi's party and, and another right-wing party a center-right coalition where they don't have to spend so much on income support for southerners, but rather can um, no. cut taxes for their wealthy business. Owner. You make a point about north-south divides. I want to make an even bigger north-south divide point as well and talk about uh, policies in Germany and in Brussels as well. Because, look, I'll put my hands on the table here. Ursula von der Leyen is a really nice person. I've met her many occasions. She always gives you time. She's a very competent defence minister, albeit with Germany uh, under fire from the uh, US, for very valid reasons about NATO spending, by the way. So I, I think she's a thoroughly good person. With her in charge of Europe, if she gets approval as well, is there going to be any change in European policy to galvanise growth as well? But bearing in mind, she's a Merkel stalwart. She's been part of that government for, for years. She's part of the European project in her plan. Her father was part of the years earlier on as well. What hopes are there for galvanization in Brussels with uh, people like Ursula von der Leyen in place? I think there is considerable hope, um, especially because she's sort of a German national, even though we, I mean, obviously we shouldn't talk about nationalities, but the fact but that... it matters. It's, That's it, why Jens Wolfgang exactly. didn't get the job, because it exactly. matters. It matters enormously, especially in sort of winning probably the public opinion in Germany over. I, I think uh, among German economists, um, sort of the uh, the, um, the thought about the debt break, for example, or the way that you have maybe have to spend more um, fiscally, it has changed actually the last couple of years, but your public opinion and sort of the, the discussion in, the, in, in politics hasn't changed that much. And in that regard, maybe Ursula von der Leyen, who is slightly more federalist, I think, than her party party colleagues could win over Germany in a way that says, all right, okay, to save this project. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.